Carmen Farina was an educator in New York City for almost 50 years. She went on to serve as chancellor for 2,000 New York City schools and as the head of the New York City Department of Education. Reflecting on her career, Farina recounts how she was born in Brooklyn during the 1950s to parents who fled Spain during the Spanish Civil War. When she entered kindergarten, she was the only non-English speaking child in her class. Imagine the challenges of trying to integrate into a classroom where no one speaks your language. Not only would you need to learn where to sit, when to raise your hand, how to ask permission to go to the bathroom, but you would have to do it in a language that's entirely new. One day, Farina's father got a postcard from the school indicating his child had been absent for six weeks. As a father who had personally taken his daughter to class each morning, he was confused. So he went back to the school and asked, why don't you know my daughter is here every day? Farina's teacher responded, I can't pronounce her last name, and she doesn't answer to the name I gave her. Can't pronounce her name, gave her a new name, she doesn't respond to it. And so for six weeks, she was marked absent. For six weeks, she was disengaged with, and so became disengaged. For six weeks, she was lost in that system because a teacher didn't take the time to learn her name, learn how to pronounce it, and actually use her name. Knowing someone's name and learning it and learning to use it, it sounds so small, it sounds so insignificant, it sounds so simple and almost meaningless but it makes it personal. It makes it something that could make the difference between a kid um, sticking around in school and being engaged and learning and becoming someone like this, or someone who drops out, someone who disengages, and someone who goes somewhere else. It could make the difference between um, being known and being unknown, or being valued or thinking yourself as so insignificant, so worthless, so valueless, that I'm not even worth remembering my name. It makes a difference between someone being engaged and learning, and someone being disengaged, and someone turning off, and someone being marked absent, who eventually that level of engagement will make them be absent, and they won't come to school anymore. That's the difference that something so simple that knowing someone's name can make. Uh, this is just one of the examples of the kinds of things we're going to talk about in our new series called It's Personal. And speaking of names, my name is Matt. I'm a pastor here on staff, and I'm happy to be able to kick off this new series called It's Personal. And what this series is about, it's about how we engage with other people so that we can form life-changing relationships. It's how we engage with one another so that we form life-changing relationships. And whether you're someone who follows Jesus or not, um, this is a series that could really be beneficial to you. Like, if you're just a teacher, um, you know, in the case of young Carmen here, like, this could be beneficial for you. If you work in business, if you work with clients and customers and whatnot, um, this series could help you form better relationships, better for your business, better for their business. If you have neighbors, right, 
This could be better for you living in the place that you live. If you're someone here who's just looking for friendship, we talked about friendship a few weeks ago. If you're looking for friendship, um, this series ought to help you kind of engage in better friendships. That's what this is about, whether you're a Jesus follower or not. But at the core of what this series is about, and this is going to be the case for most of us here, the life change that we have in mind is what happens when someone draws close to Jesus. That's the life change that we're talking about. Engaging in relationships so that we can draw other people closer to him. Other people closer to faith. Or uh, in the way that the story we'll talk about this morning talks about it, that we could draw people closer to salvation. Um, This series is loosely based off of this book right here called It's Personal. Um, We ripped off the name for the series from this book. We also ripped off the artwork, if you could see that, the little heart with the maze in it, right? You get that? Um, This is a book that was written to help uh, adults who work with kids, middle school, high school, and like little kids, um, to help them kind of touch kids at the heart level in order to engage them, in order to lead them to come to know Jesus better. That's what kind of this book is all about. That's kind of the philosophy um, of what's in here. If you can engage a student, a kid, personally, on a personal level, that's where the relationship's going to happen. That could actually change their life. And there's a good chance if you um, came to faith uh, through that sort of relational thing, you know what that's about. Um, If you're a teacher, if you're an educator in any way, I would totally recommend buying this book. It's it's really great. It's an easy read. It's quick. Um, It's too much money for being a hundred dollars, for being a hundred pages, not a hundred dollars. It's it's too much money for that, but I will say um, it is a great book. It's worth knowing. And I'll tell you why we're doing this series and why we're utilizing this book like this. There's a few reasons. The first is um, for the last 10 years or so here at Park Church, we have used uh, one curriculum in the Park Kids, in the children's section, and we've used it for a long time. Um, it's, it's done really well, but this fall we are changing the curriculum that we're using to teach your kids um, about who Jesus is. And so um, Rebecca, who's our kids coordinator, I don't know why I'm pointing over there. She's usually over there. She's teaching right now, actually. Um, She's very excited about it. I'm very excited about it. It's sort of a different way of engaging students. And this book is actually comes out of that curriculum. It's sort of the ethos behind it, where um, rather than just throwing information at kids, if we're able to know them at a personal level um, and get to know them that way, that's how we're going to actually be able to teach them about Jesus. That's how we're going to teach them how to actually follow Jesus. And so this series in that book kind of gives you a taste of what that curriculum is all about. That's kind of the first reason. The second reason, um, for all of you kids teachers out there, the ones who teach in Park Kids on Sunday mornings, um, some of them aren't here right now, obviously, because they're teaching in Park Kids, but, and then for you who work with the young, um, with the middle school students and the high school students on Wednesdays and Thursday nights, and for you who are community group leaders, who have adults gather in your home every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, whatever it is, um, this is meant to help you be better at doing that. Because at the core of what you do as leaders here at Park Church, and this is true for everyone who's a leader here at Park Church, at the core of what you're doing is you're engaging people in order to draw them closer to Jesus. And that's what this series is going to help you do. The third reason we're doing this series is so that you, whoever you are, whether you're a leader here or not, 
so that you could be better at engaging people who are outside of this church, um, who, who aren't Christians, who don't believe in Jesus maybe like you do. Um, basically, this series will help you do what, what we're calling relational evangelism better. Evangelism is sort of a dirty word. I know that. The thing you have in your head is some guy standing on a corner yelling things, right? Or handing out surveys in the park or whatever it is. That's, and that's not really what we're talking about. Evangelism just basically means to share the good news that you have found in Jesus with people who don't know it yet in a way that's appropriate. Um, and the way that we're talking about here is relational evangelism. Through the relationships that you form, you can help share Jesus with others, help draw them closer to faith, closer to salvation. That's kind of um, what, that's, what that's really all about. The last reason that we're doing this series right now, and it's not like a super religious reason, although it actually is a deeply theological reason when you think about it, it's because God made us to be in good, deep meaningful, fulfilling, enriching relationships with other people. That's just how we're made. And when we're not engaged in those sorts of relationships, we are simply not living the kind of life that God has designed us to live. And like this series will help you along um, that path. This series will move you along that path towards forming those better relationships, deep, meaningful, fulfilling relationships. Because the problem is for a lot of us, we settle for shallow rather than for personal. And I don't want to contrast shallow and deep because that's too ambiguous. I want to contrast shallow and personal. We settle for shallow. And sometimes it's okay because we can't be personal with everyone, right? It's impossible and you shouldn't even try. But with your friends, with the people who um, you live with, the, per the, the people you see day after day, the people who you take the time to engage with on, on Wednesday nights in middle school group or, or Thursday nights in high school group, or you take the time out of your world to teach them on Sunday mornings. Um, these are the people who you could get personal with. Because if you don't, it's, it's possible like you're doing your best, but you're missing out on the very best thing that you could be doing. Like, I mean, you could be great friends with someone. You could um, spend time together. You could do fun things together, talk about the same TV shows. But if you never cross that threshold from personal, I mean, I'm sorry, from shallow to personal, there's a good chance that you're just going to miss out, and they're going to miss out on what's potentially the best thing about your friendship that hasn't even happened yet, that hasn't even been realized yet. But we stay, we tend to stay shallow nevertheless, because personal is messy, right? Personal is messy. What's bubbling underneath, it's kind of messy. The thing you could say if you were allowed to say it, right? That's kind of messy. Um, the feeling that you've gotten really good at pushing down deep, that's, that's, that's messy. Um, but it's real. And we live in the real world, in real life, and that's where real life change happens. It's in the messy. Shallow is easy and clean. It's a bit pretend. Shallow looks good on uh, selfies and profile photos and on Instagram. And shallow protects you. Shallow projects what you want. Shallow can be useful and helpful in spurts. But when, when we get used to shallow as a way of life, what happens is we miss out on life. We miss out on real life. We miss out on real relationships. We miss out on people. Shallow leaves you empty and lonely. And that is just, um, that's a danger. 
Shallow leaves other people empty and lonely. And that's a crime. That's, that's a travesty. That's what we need to work with. We don't have to work hard on learning to be shallow. That comes easy to us. It comes natural. At least for me, it comes supernatural. But every time I take that chance to get personal with someone, it gets a little messy, right? You get underneath the surface a little bit. You get a little deeper with someone. It's a little bit of a risk. But every time I do it, I'm reminded, oh, yeah, this is how life is supposed to be. This is how relationships are supposed to be. This is where I'm supposed to give life and I'm supposed to have life given to me. It's not in the shallow. It's when we take that chance to go a little bit personal. And I bet for a lot of you, it's the case for me, we have to work on this. We have to learn how to do this. And this series will help um, move you down that path. Now, the good news is you're not following me in this. I am not your model. We have a much better model, a much better example to follow. Um, he's quite a leader, and he happens to be our Lord. His name is Jesus, and uh, from A to Z, Jesus is personal. And so this morning, we're going to kick off our series with, with something that's so simple and so obvious that you might, you might be tempted to check out, but please don't. It's the thing that could make or break a relationship, and it's the answer to this question. Do you know my name? For young Carmen Farina, um, it could have made all, all of the difference in the world. And so we're going to look at one story from the Gospel of Luke. If you read through the Gospels, the story of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you're going to see again and again and again is that Jesus has this way to get personal with people immediately. There's not a lot of ink spilled on like, hey, you, uh, I like your robe today. That's, that's, that's not where Jesus lives. Jesus has a tendency to meet people and get right to the heart of it um, so quickly. And we're going to look at one story this morning, and it's going to be kind of our jumping off story for the rest of the series, actually, because it's such a, such a vivid picture of the way that Jesus um, can meet someone, get personal, draw that person to themselves, um, and then change their lives forever. And it's the story of Jesus and a little man named Zacchaeus. So we're going to uh, begin the story. This is how Luke starts it. He, meaning Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus, and, was a, and he was a, ch- a chief tax collector and was rich. Jesus was passing through Jericho. This is a town about 15 miles from Jerusalem. He was passing through. It's important to note, he wasn't planning on stopping. He wasn't planning on stopping there and engaging with anyone, engaging with Zacchaeus. He was just passing through. What does that tell us? It means that Jesus is open to having his plans, his itinerary, changed by a human being. Right? Jesus is personal. Right off the bat, we see that. He's personal. Zacchaeus was there, and Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and rich. Now, Luke's gospel is always going on about the poor and um, the oppressed and the outcasts. Zacchaeus was not poor, but he was outcast. And the reason he was outcast was because of his profession, because he was a tax collector. Now, you've heard me talk about tax collectors in the past, but if you haven't, I'll fill you in on how it works. Um, This was a time where the Roman Empire was everywhere. The way the Roman Empire worked was they would come into town, they would wipe out all the army, all the leaders and whatnot, they would occupy the land, they would put a puppet leader in place, and what they would do is they would extract a huge amount of tax from the people. And that's how the Roman Empire could kind of do its thing and keep going. They would extract this huge tax from the people. No one wanted them there, but they were there anyway. 
The Romans were smart enough, though, to know they couldn't use their own tax collectors because they didn't know the language, they didn't know the customs, they didn't know the businesses, the people, the connections. And so what they did was they employed local tax collectors to do this, people who spoke the language. And that was what happened with Zacchaeus. He knew the customs, the people, the local earnings and all that, and who were a little loose with their ethics. Because the Romans knew to be a tax collector, to be a local tax collector, meant that you needed to suck the lifeblood, suck the taxes out of your own people and give them to um, this, you know, evil empire that no one wanted around. It was a tough job to do. And so the Romans kind of knew to turn a blind eye to tax collectors so that tax collectors could extract this money and then they could skim a little bit off the top for themselves. That's, how, that, that's the way that worked because um, what happened was tax collectors in those days became people who were very hated right? Their people did not like them because they turned their back on their people. They were traitors. They were selfish. They were greedy. Um, This was a job that was ripe for corruption and exploiting the poor and the powerless and the defenseless. And that's what Zacchaeus was. And he was a chief tax collector, which meant that he was in charge of a bunch of them throughout the region. And it's interesting that Luke specifies and was rich. It's a given that tax collectors were rich. The fact that Luke specifies it means that he probably had extravagant wealth, which came from extravagantly exploiting people. So Zacchaeus was hated by his people, and he was the kind of guy to trade in the hatred, or to trade for the hatred of his own people, right, Um, to make a bunch of money and to give that money uh, back to the heathen evil empire. This was who Zacchaeus was. He was a he was a bad guy, and that, that, that's kind of who he was. For some reason, though, when Jesus comes rolling into town, Zacchaeus is interested. He wants to see Jesus. He's interested, and we don't really know why. Maybe he had heard about the miracles. Maybe he heard about the healings. Um, maybe he heard that Jesus actually hung out with people who were kind of seedy, like Zacchaeus, and he wanted to see what that was about. Maybe he likes celebrities. You know, you don't know. Um, maybe... He wanted to see with his own eyes the guy who cared so little about wealth that he didn't even have a home. And he kept telling people to sell what they have and give it to the poor and to stop caring so much about money because it will kill you. Maybe Zacchaeus wanted just to go and have a look and a laugh. We don't know. Luke continues. He says, Zacchaeus, he was trying to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. This is a man of my own heart. If you're short, you know the pain. It's all too real, right? I mean, what advantages do we have outside of horse racing? What advantages do we have, right? I I was actually thinking about it. Like, if we're running from the cops in a crowd, we could get away easier. That's really all I could think of, right? Um, every time I go to a show at like the Stone Pony or whatever, right, the first thing a short guy like me does is he scopes the scene to find the high ground, and you go to the high ground so that you could get like another few inches. That's kind of the way it was. That's what Zacchaeus is doing here. He's scoping out the parade route. He's seeing how it goes. He knows he can't see Jesus above the crowd, so he finds the tree he can climb. He gets up that tree because he wants to see Jesus. The thing about being short, though, that is kind of like impactful here is what being short does to a person. And this is, um, this is only kind of autobiographical. 
not fully, only kind of autobiographical. I feel like I can get into his place here. I mean, Zacchaeus already felt bad about himself because of what he did for a living, right? He might have rode um, the nicest chariot, but there's a good chance he rode it alone because not even his family would have wanted to be with him. He was hated. But as if that's not bad enough, being short in a society of people who are taller than you makes you feel less than. That's just the way it is because you literally are. You were less than. You were less height than other people. You were literally looked down upon. And in that day, just like today, at least as a man, I don't know what it's like as a woman. I imagine it's a little different. You don't get the same respect that tall people get. Um, you're not given as much of a chance. You're not taken as seriously. You are literally looked down upon because of your height. There's all kinds of studies done about why successful presidential candidates are all over six foot, right? Um, the only short guys you can remember, Michael Dukakis, how did he do? Ross Perot, excellent Saturday Night Live character, but he was not going to lead our nation, right? It's why short people, by the way, are forced to be funny, because we have no chance, like, athletically, no middle school girl is going to like us because we can't run fast enough, hit far enough, right? That's the way it is. So we have to be artsy and musical, we have to be smart, or we have to be funny, and that's, that's, that's what works. So Zacchaeus here, Zacchaeus is sort of like a short billionaire, right? Evil villain who thinks, like, I'll show those tall people what it's like. The point is, Zacchaeus is low. He's literally low to the ground, but he's literally low in life. Like, he's a low life, but he's down on himself, probably feeling insecure about what he is. And insecure people put out a tough exterior. They build big houses. They build, they big, build fortunes to compensate for their insecurities, that kind of thing. Zacchaeus is probably feeling what a lot of us have felt over the course of our lives, that we're just kind of less than, that we're just kind of worthless, not, no value, that we're just kind of alone, that um, who would want to care about me? Who would want to love me? Maybe the way that young Carmen felt, right? Going to school, not being noticed, being marked um, as absent, forgotten about, lost in that system. That's, that's where he had... Maybe that's what sent him up that tree that day. Luke writes, when Jesus came to that place, came to the place, he looked up. He looked up at Zacchaeus in the tree, and he said something to Zacchaeus that would forever change Zacchaeus' life, that would open, open his heart, open his mind, open his soul, open his future, open his possibilities, open him to salvation. And you know what he says to him? He says his name just says Zacchaeus. He knew his name. The celebrity who came into town, who has a parade following him, who happens to be God in the flesh, walking around in miserable 101 degree heat on his way through someplace to get to where he was actually going. He actually stops, knows his name, and says it. Not, hey you, not little man. He said his name, called him by name. For Zacchaeus, what could connect more personally for him. He knows my name. It's supposed to be the other way around. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy 
to welcome him. He's pumped because Jesus wanted to stay with Zacchaeus. No one wanted to stay with Zacchaeus. No one wanted to be in Zacchaeus' presence. No one wanted to go to his house, but Jesus does. And he knows him by name and calls him by name in front of everyone. And look at what everyone did. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. And there was nothing worse in those days than being called a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay them back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek out and save the lost. That's who Jesus came to seek out and save. And Zacchaeus was lost with all of his money. He was lost up in that tree. Zacchaeus needed to be saved because with all of that stuff, with all of the money in the world, he felt like he was worth nothing. He had no hope and he needed hope. That's what Jesus brings him on that day. There is so much we could talk about with this passage, so much. I'm just going to focus on that one fact, though. The fact that he calls him, knows him, and calls him by name. Now, first thing, obvious question, how did Jesus know his name, right? We don't actually know. Um, maybe his reputation preceded him. Um, maybe, has anyone seen the show Veep here? That's actually good that only three people have. It's super, <laughs> anyway, okay, different analogy. Anyway, maybe he had someone in his entourage who like knew about this town. It was like whispering in his ear, like, okay, this is a guy, he's a guy, super rich, a little short, though, heck of a climber. You're going to want to stay away from him because he is kind of like a jerk and kind of steals money from people. No one likes him. If you want to be someone in this town, you know, don't talk to this guy. Maybe that's what happened for Jesus. Maybe Jesus just used his God power and, like, looked it up in the God Rolodex, the God Contacts app, and, um, you know, and figured out who it is. We actually don't know. The only thing we do know is that Jesus knowing the impact, the power of calling someone by name, called him by name. And if you think about the power, the impact that that would have had for Zacchaeus, it's, it's quite remarkable. Um, after the crowd got over their grumbling, their jealousy, it would have given Zacchaeus credibility. It would have given him respect in that crowd of people who respected Jesus. What are they called on Instagram? Influencers? right? You get paid to be an influencer now, something like that. Um, that's what Jesus was, except he wasn't paid for it. Jesus was an influencer. If Jesus knew someone's name, then that person was worth knowing. That person was worth knowing about. It also changes the conversation about Zacchaeus. He's not so e easy to label anymore. He can't just be called a chief tax collector or um, traitor or money-hungry weasel, right? His name was spoken out loud by the by the guy who drew the biggest crowd around. Think for a second about how labels are absolutely minimized and put in the trash by a name, right? That person in your class, it's not that nerd, it's Tom, right? It's not, sorry Tom. Um, <laughs> I didn't even think about that, but yeah, it kind of works. Um, <laughs> Just kidding. Tom is one of my best friends, and he's an engineer. Like, I used to be an engineer, and he thinks like an engineer, and it's absolutely brilliant. Anyway, um, it's not that drug addict, right? It's Sarah, 
And Sarah is someone's daughter. I hope there's no Sarahs here. I don't want to do this for every one of these. It's not that immigrant, right? It's Jose. And Jose is here for a reason. It's not our crummy waitress. It's Jess. And our crummy waitress might be a crummy waitress, but Jess is having a tough day because her parents are going through an ugly divorce, right? It's not that behavioral disorder kid in my class. It's Tim. And Tim has a story he's coming with. Tim has things he's carrying. Tim is a person beyond what his diagnosis says uh, and what his school files say. We'll talk about that dynamic in future series, or in future sermons. But using a name, it just makes it personal immediately. But what using a name really does is it communicates value. It communicates that you're worth knowing, that you're worth remembering. It communicates that beyond the tax collecting greed, beyond the drug use, beyond your horrible waitressing skills, whatever it is, you are worth knowing beyond that exterior. You're worth remembering. Because you all know how it feels, right? When someone who you think should know your name doesn't know your name, right? Like that person who you've met 10 times, they introduce themselves again. It's like, ugh, I must be that insignificant that you can't remember my name, right? Or like, you know, when you're at the doctor, or you're waiting for the test results, this man literally has your life in his hands, right? Um, and he has to check the chart to make sure he's got your name right. Like, just doesn't feel good. Like, everyone knows doctors see hundreds of people a day. They can't possibly know all their patients. But it just makes you feel like, oh, gosh, you have my life in your hands, and you don't even know my name. I'll never forget, I was, I used to be a chaplain um, at this hospital, and uh, one day, one of the um, operating room technicians died um, unexpectedly the night before, right? And so the next morning, um, I came into work. They told me about it, and they said, um, you know, can you go to that floor and care for them? So I went to that floor all day. I kind of cared for them. I sat. I listened. I prayed. They cried. You know, that whole thing. It was a good, good day for them, I and mean, that, that's what you did as a chaplain. The next day, we had a little service um, in the morning to kind of like remember him to, as a chance to share and whatnot. I got up there and I said a few words and I, you know, um, I did a little prayer and I kind of led them. And anyway, one of the VPs gets up. She's kind of a higher up muckety muck. Um, she gets in there and she starts talking and she, you know, um, just want to like remember him, blah, blah, blah. And I want to thank you, Mark, just for all of the work that you've done. But the way that you, you know, if anyone here is suffering, if, if anyone is upset, like, please talk to Pastor Mark. He will be able to, like, help you. So helpful. It's like, that's what I am. I'm the wrong name to this person, right? Um, she's a VP. She's not supposed to know who I am, right? I was a lowly chaplain in those days. But um, I guarantee you, if I was a doctor with a few more zeros on the end of that name, <laughs> she would have known what my name was, right? Um, that's just... And you, like, you know what that feels like when they don't know um, your name. And on the flip side, on the flip side, when someone does know your name and you don't expect them to, how does that feel, right? How does that make you feel? It's great. I, I, I'm impressed with a lot of what my wife does. Um, she's a teacher. She teaches reading and writing. She has about 60 kids because she does it for the entire grade. And every single um, August... Right before the school year starts, she makes it a point to memorize the face and the name of every single one of her 60-plus kids who come into her class. So that on the very first day of school, as they're walking into class, she says to them, Hey, Tom, how was your summer? Right? Um, hey, Sarah, great to see you. Great to meet you. That sort of thing. 
what that means to those kids. Um, they're never going to say to her, hey, Mrs. Agresti, it meant so much to me that you knew my name on the first day of school. That's not what that's going to do, right? But what that is going to do is that's going to say to those kids, you are so worth my time. You are so valuable here that I'm going to give my time in my summer break to remember you. What that's going to do is build an immediate connection with that kid that will open the door um, to them being led to where you want them to be led. And for her, it's to lead them towards better reading and writing. For us, it's to lead people closer to Jesus, closer to salvation, closer to faith. And so for you, whatever your role is as a moment, in this moment, as a leader or even as someone who has appeared, as someone who has an opportunity to engage someone else in a way that draws them closer to Jesus, would you say that you know the people well enough to actually call them by their first name? Like, if you're a teacher in Park Kids over there, whether you do it once a month, twice a month, or four times a month, your role is to draw those little kids closer to Jesus in the way that you can, piece by piece, little by little. Do you know them by name? If you want to make an impact in their life, calling them by, by name, getting that right, could be the difference between a kid saying, gosh, I came to Park Church, and they knew my name, they remembered me, and mom, dad, we need to go back there. It could be the difference between that and I went there, I felt like I was forgotten about, lost, no one knew who I was, let's not come back there again. That could hang in the balance between you knowing their name and not. Um, this is something that Rebecca, our kids coordinator, does extremely well. She has like a gift for it. She's super impressed with her there. But the same goes for you as a middle school leader, or as a high school leader, um, knowing the names of the kids who walk in the doors every Wednesday or Thursday night. When I was a high school leader, we used to put a lot of work into knowing the kids' names, remembering them. Sometimes we'd yell the kids' names as they walked in the door before they could even like enter, and it was all exciting and whatnot. Um, and what that said to those high school kids at the time was, yes, my teachers stink and they don't like me, and my parents stink and they don't like me, and my boss at Hot Topic stinks and she doesn't like me, right? <laughs> but what it says is that there's a place where people actually like me, where people actually remember me, where people actually notice me. But what about just you as a person, right? We've said it a zillion times up here. Your job as a Jesus follower, in one way or another, um, is to serve him in the mission of making more Jesus followers, of engaging with people in a way that draws them closer to Jesus. Do you know the names of the people who you might be called to engage with in a way that draws them closer to Jesus? I mean, think about the people in your life, right? Your kids. I hope you know your kids' names. If not, we have to talk afterwards, all right? And I'm assuming you know the names of your friends, right? I'm assuming that that's the case too. Um, you are called, whether they're Jesus followers or not, to draw them closer to Jesus. That's what you're a part of, but you know their names. But, but what about the mom who you see at pickup every day, or you see at the beach, or you see at the park, who you could just see is struggling with it? They're struggling with their kids. They're struggling with life. Their, their husband's a bad guy or their husband works 16 hours a day or whatever it is, and they are just struggling with it. Do you know her name? Can you learn her name this week so that next time you see, it, you see her, you call her by her name and address her like that? Look, that might not seem like a lot. That might not seem like a huge Christian thing to do. But to the mom who feels lost, 
like no one notices her, like there's no one to help, like she's drowning in this sea of all of the responsibilities, all the work. A possible friend who has taken the time to learn and know and use a name is a lifeline to a sinking person. That's what you could do. The same is true for your neighbors. Do you know the names of your neighbors? We, we're so isolated by our phones, right, that we don't actually know the name of the people who we live next to. Or what about the barista who serves your coffee six days a week, right? Or what about the bartender at Applebee's who's there every afternoon you go to watch a Yankees game on the back patio? That's not autobiographical, by the way, but, but his name is John. Um, <laughs> it's so simple. It's so simple, but it really... Uh, is impactful. When you remember someone's name and say it, you're not just saying their name, you're, you're communicating their value, that they're worth remembering, they're worth, they're worth noticing when they're around, that they're not just another cog in your life because they're someone who matters, someone who is of infinite value because they too are creations of God, someone who God saw it fitting to send his son into the world to give his life for because he loves and God knows them by name. God tells us in Isaiah that he knows us by name, that we are precious in his sight, that God honors us because he knows us. We are his creation. When we call someone by name like that, when we take the time to learn, to remember, to use their name, we're not just remembering their name, but we are echoing the very love of God that God has for that person, the preciousness in my sight of God, the honor that God bestows. Now, the challenge is, and I know this is true for all of you, you're horrible with names, right? Join the club. Everyone's horrible, at na- horrible with names. Um, but like most things, it's something you can learn to get better at if you actually want to try, okay? And here's quick tips how to get better. The first thing, actually care. It turns out when we actually care about things, we, we do a good job learning what we need to to actually do it, right? Um, actually care about them. You will learn their name when you actually care. The second, repeat it a few times in the conversation, right? It's polite. Um, it shows that you're engaged, and it's a helpful way to imprint it on your mind. Um, third, if you're unsure, ask about the name. Ask if you're pronouncing it right. Ask, that's an interesting name. Where does that come from? Ask about the name. Learn that story. Is it Dutch, right? Fourth tip, write it down. Um, Get the notes app up on your phone and fill it with names, right? You know, hey Siri, I met Sarah with an H. Why does it have an H? I don't know. Oh no. It's actually doing it. Stop it. Sorry. Fifth, fifth, um, pray for that person by name. When you pray for someone by name, you are going to remember what that person's name is. Because you're taking time out of your day in an unusual time, hopefully in a non-stressful time, to lift their name up to God, you're going to remember what it is. Look, learning someone's name, it is just a first step in getting personal. Um, Going beyond the shallow to actually connect with the real person. It's a first step, but it's an important first step. From the book that's on the ground, um, it says, in a world where so many kids are known by a number on a jersey, digits on a carpool tag, random usernames, and national statistics. We need more caring adults who know them personally by name. And I'll say the same is true for adults. In a world where so many adults are known by that big fella in accounting, 
right? Or um, the neighbor, you know, the woman who lives next door who has a drinking problem. Or the crummy waitress who gave us too much ice. We need caring adults who know them personally, who know them by name. What if this week you decided to surprise someone by learning, remembering, and using their name the next time you saw them? Um, It might not be the thing that changes their lives, that leads them to metaphorically having Jesus into their home, bringing salvation, changing them that day. But what it might do is give them enough hope that they actually are worth remembering, that they actually are worth knowing. And that might open the door to that possibility. That could make all of the difference. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have called us by name, that you know us by name, that we are precious in your sight, that we are made for your glory, that we are made for your love because you love us. Lord, we pray that as a people here, whether it's the way we teach our kids here on Sunday mornings, the way we engage with high school and middle school students on Wednesday and Thursday nights, the way we have people gathered in our living rooms, the way we just do friendships in this community, and the way we engage the world outside of us. We pray that you would give us the courage to get personal with people, to go, belong, to, to go deeper than the shallow, to actually engage them where real life happens, where it's a little messy, but where the heart is. Because what we want, Lord, um, is to open doors that will draw people closer to you whether it's the kid being drawn closer to you on Sunday morning or the coworker being drawn closer to you on Wednesday afternoon. Lord, we pray that you give us courage and um, boldness to do this. Help us to remember, help us to know the people around us so that we could know how to reach them for your kingdom. We lift all of this, Lord, up to you, and in your name we pray. Amen.